Today's case reads almost like a cautionary tale for members of the queer community living in the digital age. This is the story of a serial killer and rapist who went unnoticed by the police for years despite multiple attempts by his victim's family members to get them to notice him. A killer who would find and lure his victims to his home through various dating apps. This is the story of Stephen Port, a.k.a. The Grinder Killer. Howdy there, strangers. I'm Jordy. And I'm Brad. And welcome back to another episode of Beers with Queers. Thanks again for joining us for another week and listening, and hopefully you guys aren't uh, sick of us yet. So this week, we're actually going to be talking about the Grinder Killer. Now, of course, I'm sure a lot of queer people, mainly gay men, know what Grinder is. But just to run down, can you explain what Grinder is? It's a hookup app. It's a hookup app. It's, you know, you can go on there and meet other gay people, like-minded individuals. So Grindr was actually, has played a huge part in a lot of queer people's lives since its launch on March 25th, 2009, which I honestly feel like it's been around a lot longer than that. But that just shows you how much of a cultural impact it actually has had on the community. For good and bad. For good and bad. And we're actually about to, we're going to get into it, you know. Every good has a, a dark side. Now, Grinder was actually one of the first apps made available that specifically focused on queer relationships and dating. Before that, it was early message board websites like gay.com in the early 2000s, which was a little before my time, but I have heard stories and read about it on Reddit. And um, so Grinder kind of took that over in the late aughts or late 2000s. Of course, since then, a number of other similar-themed apps have appeared, such as Scruff, Growler. Um, I don't know any of the other new ones. I'm sure there's, like, Tamey. Tamey. Isn't there one called, like, Tamey? I've never heard of one called Tamey. <laughs> it's like T-A-I-M-I or something like that. Uh, Maybe. It's been a while since I've been on any apps. but all right. And Tamey is one. Uh, Jacked is another one. But now, Grindr continues to be popular and is actually the largest gay mobile app in the world with over 11 million monthly users all over the world. And I know multiple couples who have actually met on Grindr. So although it is primarily used as a, a hookup app, there are all kinds of success stories out there. You know, I know some people that met like back in 2009 and they're like, oh, how'd you guys meet? And it's like, Grindr. And they uh, lived happily ever after. So, you know, there is a lot of good to be had with the app, especially for a lot of queer people, you know, first getting out there. And I remember myself, I downloaded it when I first started going out when I was about 18 because I was like, well, how else are you supposed to, you know, meet other queer people? And so it was a nice way to meet uh, some friends that I'm still friends with till this day. So despite a lot of stigma with the app, there are some good aspects to it. It allows people who may not be out to communicate with people just like them, or it may not even be safe for them to be out where they live, so it definitely helps them feel less alone. 
But today, we are going to be talking about one of the darkest stories to come from the app, and that is in the form of Stephen Port, a.k.a. the Grinder Killer. And before we get into this, this is actually our first international case we're covering, because we're actually leaving the United States and crossing the pond to London. Ooh la la. So hello to everyone listening in the UK. And we're actually going to have another uh, international case here soon, so we're starting to branch out, spread our wings. So let's just start from the beginning. Stephen Port was born in Southend-by-the-Sea, Essex, in 1975, but moved to Dagenham in East London with his parents when he was just a year old. His father was a cleaner for the local council, and his mother worked as a cashier at a supermarket. And by all accounts, they were great parents, and Port had a fairly normal childhood. But Stephen was often described as being very quiet and an introvert, having trouble connecting with people from a very young age. One teacher even described how a lot of people thought Stephen was deaf at first because he was so quiet. He eventually graduated from high school at the age of 16 and decided to go to art college. However, it proved to be too expensive for his parents to afford, so he dropped out and instead spent two years training as a chef. Afterwards, he eventually found work as a chef at a stagecoach bus depot in West Ham. And this is just a random fact that I found. He was actually on an episode of uh, Master Chef. Now, Stephen came out as gay in his early 20s and lived with his parents until he was about 30. But in 2005, he moved out and into his own apartment, or flat, as they call them in London, or in the UK, I mean. He moved into his flat in Barking, London. Now, Stephen's shyness continued to adulthood, and many believe that he may have actually suffered from a stunted mental development because he was often described as being very childlike, and one neighbor, one neighbor even described an incident when he proceeded to sit in the middle of a... I'm sorry, let me start over with that. One neighbor even described an incident where he gave Stephen a toy truck and Stephen loved it and then proceeded to sit in the floor in the middle of a party and roll it back and forth like a little kid would, completely oblivious to the outside world. And this is in his 20s, right? No, this is in his 30s. Oh, this is in his 30s. Okay. Yeah. So he's in his and the the guy even he was with a friend he's like oh i think my neighbor steven would like that and the dude was like you can't give a grown man a toy car but he's like you don't know steven i think he'll like it and he did and he also you know he watched nothing but cartoons and he had toys all over his room which is not weird i mean i watch cartoons and i have toys all over my house too so but now although he acted childlike he did not look it steven was actually a very fit and muscular guy and frequently spent a lot of time at the gym. However, he did suffer from male pattern baldness, which left him feeling very insecure, and so he would often wear a toupee to try and cover it up. And I'm going to post photos with this on the case, and you can see it has a huge difference. He goes from about looking 30 to looking about 54. Now, Stephen's move into his own place offered him a large amount of newfound freedom, and this con coincided with the rise of social media. So, you know, this was 2005, 2006, MySpace was still the king, so R.I.P. Tom. Facebook was just starting to pick up steam, and Stephen found himself leaving the house less and less as he retreated on the internet. Now, he created multiple profiles with various different names, backstories, and sometimes he just completely made shit up. In one profile, he claimed to be ex-military. In one, he claimed to have graduated from Oxford University. So he definitely found comfort in the 
you're probably gonna have to pronounce it, anonymity of the internet. He was a catfisher. He was, and I was actually about to just say that he was a catfish before catfish actually became a term, became popular on the internet. And of course, you know, people still to this day catfish and lie on the internet. It's the internet. But he, you'll see, started to take it a little bit too far because he also used, and he also used photos taken of him years before. So, you know, they do that on Grinder too. You'll meet somebody and be like, yeah, that's you, but that's you from 20 years ago. So all these lies soon allowed Stephen to begin meeting a lot of different guys from all around the area. All of them he would bring back to his flat. Now, Stephen had a very particular type, and that was he was only interested in very young men, mainly teenagers, and definitely no one above the age of 25. He had a thing for twinks, and we actually explained what twinks were in episode one, but could you explain what a twink is now? They are non-muscular, usually hairless, uh, younger guys. Yeah, so skinny and hairless, that's basically the gist of it. You know, it goes from like twink to otter, which is slightly hairier than a twink, and then it goes to bear, which is hairy. So that's what he was into. He was into twinks, which there's nothing wrong with. He even had several boyfriends over the years, all of whom stated that Stephen was very mentally abusive towards them. Several of them were actually advertised as escorts on various websites with Stephen's number as the contact info. And most most disturbing of all, most of the photos of the boys featured them unconscious and nude on the bed as if they were sleeping or knocked out. And we will see here soon enough that he has a habit of knocking people unconscious. So he often preyed on and groomed very young and vulnerable young men, men he knew he could manipulate and gaslight to stay with him. Stephen's internet search history, search history began to grow increasingly disturbing around this time, and he would often search for date rape porn. One video he watched featured drugs being slipped into an unsuspecting victim's drink, which he would later recreate with one of his own victims. Now, Stephen used a variety of websites to hunt for young boys, but Grinder soon became his preferred method of contact. And in early 2012, this is where he met and began talking to a young teenage boy, and the two eventually agreed to meet up and spend the night together. Now, the teenager's first impressions of Stephen didn't actually raise any alarm bells. He described him as being very polite and friendly. The two went back to Stephen's apartment, where they sat watching cartoons and drinking wine. Now, the teen immediately noticed how the wine tasted very bitter, and pretty soon noticed the sludge at the bottom of the glass. He began to feel tired and like the room was spinning, and so Stephen suggested that he go into the bedroom to lie down, which he did, and immediately passed out. The next thing, slight trigger warning, the next thing the teen remembers is waking up to find Stephen on top of him and raping him before he passed out again. The next morning, he awoke feeling very sick and groggy, and Stephen just dropped him back off at the train station where he picked him up from and acted as if nothing happened. Now, he did later state, of course, at trial that he was afraid to go to the police due to the fear of potentially being outed, and that is one tragic aspect of a lot of crimes against queer people is a lot of times they don't report it because they aren't out to their families, and they're, you know, terrified of their secret getting out. So I definitely sympathize with with this person. In another incident that happened in 2014, Stephen met a Muslim man on a website called Fit Lads. 
in his early 20s, which I'm guessing Fit Lads is kind of like a grinder in the UK. The man visited Stephen at his flat on four different occasions, all of which went by without any incidents. However, on the fifth occasion, the man said that Stephen supplied him with alcohol and drugs, which up until that point he had never consumed either, including amyl nitrate, a.k.a. poppers. Now, do you know what poppers are? Uh, aren't they kind of like VCR cleaner that you huff and it uh, loosens things up? So, yeah, one uh, brand of it is technically VCR cleaner. So poppers, of course, are a very popular but legal drug within the gay community. They come in small bottles of liquid that you actually inhale the vapors from, so you don't drink it or anything. You just, like, put it up to your nose and huff the fumes from it. And it provides a brief, euphoric state of relaxation and is often used during sex because inhaling them actually causes a brief drop in blood pressure and helps relax the smooth muscles of the anus and throat and allows you to, just putting out there, take bigger penises. <laughs> Pardon my French, but that's the truth. I personally have never tried them before, so I can't tell you from experience, but I, knew no, I do know a lot of friends who swear by them and really enjoy them. Now, the man later stated that after this, Stephen gave him a glass of clear wick liquid, which he said was water. However, after drinking it, he immediately fell unconscious. The next thing he remembers is waking up on the floor screaming and thrashing around as Stephen was taking off his underwear. Now, this freaked Stephen out pretty bad, and he was afraid the noise would attract too much attention, so he dragged the man to his car, drove him back to the train station, which is called Barking Station. The man continued to scream and attempt to break free from Stephen as he was being dragged into the train station, and this caused several concerned bystanders to call an ambulance and the police. Now, the police soon arrived at the scene and interviewed the man and Stephen, it was later said that Stephen acted very nervous and jittery as he explained that the man had arrived at his flat already in that state and that he was just trying to get him back home. Now the man, who was not out to his parents, was afraid that they would find out and so he chose not to press criminal charges or involve the police. And so the police soon left, the man went back home, and Stephen returned to his own flat. Now, just two weeks later, Stephen would meet his first victim. So again, it's one of those situations where it's just, you know, of course they did this to you, but at the same time, a lot of people's lives could be ruined if this actually got out. So again, I mean, I understand where the dude was coming from. Now on June 17th, 2014, Stephen contacted Anthony Walgate, a 23-year-old fashion student from Hull who also occasionally worked as an escort. Stephen offered to pay Anthony 800 pounds to spend the night together, and he agreed. But Anthony was very cautious and made sure to tell his friends about where he was going. Stephen picked Anthony up from Barking Station and took him back to his flat. Now, two days later, on June 19th, Stephen called 999, which is 911 here in the U.S., and asked for an ambulance to be sent as he found a young man passed out and having a seizure on the street in front of his flat. And... I'll actually play the actual phone call clip that he made to the police.
Yeah, what area? Bargain. Okay. It's like you've collapsed or anesthesia or something. It's just always just drunk. I don't think I'm being pulled up. I'm just pulled up in the car. I've got to get my car down the park. Right, don't worry about that. What's the telephone number you're calling from? Hello? So paramedics soon arrived at the scene and found Anthony slumped against a wall just feet from Stephen's apartment. Beside him was his bag, and in it they found a vial containing the party and date rape, dr- date rape, date rape drug, GHB. Anthony was pr- pronounced dead shortly before 8 a.m. from a drug overdose. Now, when police arrived, they questioned Stephen, who told police he had been coming home from work when he spotted Anthony on the ground outside his flat and assumed he was just having a seizure, so he called for help. Police believed his story, and they treated Anthony's death as not suspicious. But not too long after Anthony's death, his friends contacted police and told them about how he was on his way to meet up with a guy on the night he disappeared. Police soon discovered that that man was Stephen Port and that he had lied. So, on June 26th, Stephen was arrested. Now, Stephen was questioned by police and soon told them that Anthony had taken drugs not long after arriving at his flat, and afterwards the two had sex. Anthony fell asleep. The next day, Stephen went to work, and when he returned home, he found Anthony dead. Panicking, he dragged his body outside to the street before calling the police. And investigators believed him again. Stephen w- but Stephen was still charged with perverting the court of justice due to a story of what happened changing. So he, they believed, like, okay, that's really what happened, but he was like, he still lied about it to begin with, so they did charge him with that, at least. It's already starting to have, like, Jeffrey Dahmer feel. Oh, no, no, no. Like, it's like, he just kept getting away with stuff that you're like, how was he getting away with this? And then you can go back and be like, oh, well, that was the 90s. People were kind of... But this guy's doing the same stuff and getting away with the same stuff, so... Oh no, just wait. This gets it gets worse with the police's involvement. He literally could have been stopped after every single murder. And they just keep letting letting him go. So again, like I said, investigators believed in what happened. They still treated Anthony's death as an accident. And but he was immediately released on bail and his trial was set for March of twenty fifteen. But it didn't take long for him to start looking for his next victim. Just two months after Anthony's death, Stephen would meet 22-year-old Gabriel Cavari on Grinder. Gabriel had just recently moved to London from Spain in 2014 to live with his boyfriend. I'm sorry if I pronounced this wrong, Thierry Amodio. Sadly, the two did break up and Gabriel moved out, but he struggled to find a secure place to live and bounced around from place to place until he met, he met a man named John Pappy. Now, John invited him to come stay with him in his spare bedroom he had, but just a few weeks after living with John, Gabriel announced that he had found a room to rent in Barking and that he would be moving out, although John insisted that he could stay as long as he wanted. On August 23, 2014, Gabriel moved in with Stephen Port, and just five days later, he would be dead. So on August 24th, Port actually told his neighbor, Ryan Edwards, that he had to meet his new twink flatmate. So Ryan had the two over for dinner, and things seemed to be going well, until Stephen got up to use the restroom. After he was sure that he was gone, Gabriel leaned in close to Ryan and whispered to him, Stephen is not the kind of guy you think he is. He's a bad man. 
So obviously something had happened in less than 24 hours to make Gabriel not feel safe anymore in Stephen's house. But before Ryan could press for any more details, Stephen came back from the bathroom and they continued like nothing happened. Now, but before the pair left his flat, Ryan made sure to exchange numbers with Gabriel and told him to keep in touch. The two talked regularly for a bit before Gabriel suddenly stopped responding. When Ryan asked Stephen about what happened, Stephen at first said he didn't know and that Gabriel had just disappeared. However, a while later, he told him that Gabriel had gone to live with a soldier he had met online. And just a few days after that, Stephen changed his story again and told Ryan that Gabriel had moved back home and had caught a mysterious illness and died. How convenient. Very convenient. So on August 28, 2014, a woman named Barbara Denham was walking her dog through the graveyard of St. Margaret's Church when she stumbled across the body of a man slumped against a stone wall in the corner of the graveyard. It was Gabriel, and he was dead. Sitting beside him were bags filled with all of his possessions, and it would later be determined that he had died of a drug overdose. So now that's two mysterious overdose deaths around this area in the span of just a few months, and in just another month, another man would be found dead. But after Gabriel's death, his friend John was the one who was to, was the one that was informed of his passing. Several police officers arrived at his door and told him that Gabriel had overdosed in a cemetery. Now, John was, of course, heartbroken over this, but more than that, he was suspicious because something just didn't sit right with how police described Gabriel's death, and so he decided to do some investigating himself. And soon he began to look online at Gabriel's death report and other incidents in the area, and that's when he came across an article about the death of Anthony Walgate. And another thing is, John swore that Gabriel did not use drugs at all, so the fact that he died of an overdose just didn't sit right. Now, both of the cases between Anthony and Gabriel shared a lot of similarities to one another. Both men were in their early 20s, both were found with all of their possessions by their side, and both had died from overdoses, even though neither had a history of drug use. John also pulled up Google Maps and realized just how close St. Margaret's was to Cook Street, which is where Stephen's flat was and where Anthony's body was found. So John decided it couldn't be a coincidence and contacted Gabriel's ex-boyfriend, Thierry, and told him everything he had found and suggested that they go to the police. Now, Thierry was already conducting his own investigation, actually, at this point, and began to search for clues on Gabriel's Facebook page, where, on September 10th, he actually discovered and got into contact with a guy named John Luck, who had recently been following Gabriel on social media. So John said that he had actually spent a few nights with Gabriel back in August before Gabriel was picked up by an older Irish man named Tony. A few days later, John messaged Thierry again and stated that he was told by a friend that Tony had taken Gabriel and another young man named Dan to an orgy in Barking. Tony described these places, or I'm sorry, John said that Tony described these places as places where older men would drug younger men and then gang rape them. And here's an actual message from John Locke. John Luck. I'm sorry, John Locke is a character from Lost. John Luck. I texted him and asked what happened to Gabe, and he said he left with a young boy about his age named Dan, and they were heading to a party slash orgy embarking. Dan is tall, light brown, and looks similar to Gabe, just a bit taller, very slim. When I told him that Gabe was dead, he said he didn't want anything to do with it and to leave him alone. However, just two days later, John contacted Thierry and told him how detectives just informed him of Dan's death. 
and that he committed suicide and suggested to Thierry that Dan probably knew what happened to Gabriel and he couldn't live with the guilt. So John asked Thierry to let him know if detectives contact him and if he finds any new leads or names in his own investigation. So, of course, Thierry urged John to go to the police with what he knows, but John refused, saying that he was afraid. So Thierry went to them himself and contacted a detective in Barking, giving him all the info he had and his suspicions. He also gave them John Luck's Facebook profile and urged them to contact him. He even brought up the death of Anthony Walgate and flat-out asked detectives, could these cases be related? But detective brushed him off and said, no, the cases aren't related. Thierry again pleaded with detectives to get in contact with John and question him. They said they would and that they'd keep him posted with any new updates. But that was complete bullshit because they never even attempted to contact John. They never even contacted them or he didn't contact them back because if they had even looked into it just the slightest, they would have realized that John Luck was actually Stephen Port and that he was using a fake profile. So Stephen had been masking his John and keeping in contact with Thierry in an attempt to not only throw him off his trail, but remember he was asking him to keep him updated if the police told him any new news. So this fucker was using this poor guy to keep tabs on himself to see if police were suspicious. Now let's talk about Dan. Because even though John Luck is not a real person, Dan very much is, and his case actually was connected to Gabriel's, which police were investigating. Daniel Whitworth was a 21-year-old chef who began talking to Stephen Port on a website called Fit Lads in early September. By September 18th, Port and Daniel agreed to meet up for dinner at Port's flat. Daniel's co-workers last saw him leaving work around 3 p.m. as he stated he was meeting a friend for drinks. Now on September 20th, 2014, Barbara Denham was again walking her dog through the cemetery of St. Margaret's when she stumbled across another body in the exact same location where she found the first. So, and she actually did an interview and she's like, I was just walking again and the first thing that popped into my head was, oh God, not another one. And so this poor woman found two bodies in the exact same location. You know, you would think police would be thinking, hey, you're the one finding the bodies. Maybe you're part of this or something because they're not thinking about who's actually involved in this case. She's just, she was this like nice old woman, nice British woman, but we'll just wait. They, again, it was the body of 21-year-old Daniel Whitworth. He was sitting on a blue bed sheet and slumped against the stone wall, just like Gabriel had been. His cell phone was missing, and he was carrying a small brown bottle that would later be found to have GHB. He had died from a drug overdose, and police at first ruled it a suicide because they actually found a suicide note next to his body. And in that note, Daniel claimed responsibility for the murder of Gabriel. And here is the actual note. I am sorry to everyone, mainly my family, but I can't go on anymore. I took the life of my friend Gabriel. We were just having some fun at a mate's place, and I got carried away and gave him too much, too much of a shot of G. I didn't notice while we were having sex that he had stopped breathing. I tried everything to get him to breathe again, but it was too late. It was an accident, but I blame myself for what happened and I didn't tell my family I went out. I know I would go to prison if I go to the police, and I couldn't do that to my family, and at least this way, I can at least be with Gabriel again. I hope he will forgive me. By the way, please do not blame the guy I was with last night. We only had sex, then I left. He knows nothing of what I have done. 
I have taken what G I have left with sleeping pills, so if it doesn't kill me, it's so if it does kill me, it's what I deserve. Feeling dizzy now as I took ten minutes ago, so hoping you understand my writing. I dropped my phone on my way here, so it should be in the grass somewhere. Sorry to everyone. Love always, Daniel. By the way, I stopped and got groceries yesterday at four o'clock. Mm-hmm. And yeah, once again, don't pay any attention to that guy, that one guy. Especially not him, please. So police actually gave the note to Daniel's family, and they were immediately suspicious. Because first of all, it didn't make any fucking sense. Daniel never showed any signs of being suicidal or homicidal for that matter. But also because of that one big detail in the letter, don't blame the guy I was with last night. And they were like, why would you put that in a suicide note? That's not even addressed to his family, by the way. So they thought that was weird too. And so it's like... You're about to die, and that's the one detail you include. Right. Things were also not sitting right with Daniel's long-term boyfriend, Ricky. The two lived together and were in constant contact with each other when they weren't together. And it was actually Ricky who first raised the alarm bells after he failed to get in contact with Daniel. Daniel's family went to the police and begged them to look deeper into the case and investigate the man Daniel was last seen with that he mentioned in the note. However, police refused and accepted the suicide note as being valid and ruled his death a suicide. So see where the uh, Jeffrey Dahmer parallels are starting to be more and more apparent? Yeah, uh, police don't care about gay people. No. Had they even done even the slightest bit of digging, they discover that the man mentioned in the note was Stephen Port and that his DNA was not only all over Daniel, it was also all over the bedsheet he was found on and it was all over the suicide note. Remember, police already had Stephen's fingerprints on file due to his prior arrest anyway, so if they had found his fingerprints, that he would have popped up immediately. So by this point, that's three gay men who have all been found dead, two of them in the exact same spot by the exact same woman, and the local queer community was getting worried about a potential serial killer, although police were still treating all the deaths as non-suspicious. John remember John Gabriel's friend, was getting fed up at this point and was getting desperate trying to get the police to take these deaths seriously. He eventually got into contact with Gallup, which is an anti-violence LGBT group, and had them contact the police on his behalf. But again, police stated the cases were nothing more than two accidental overdoses and a suicide directly related to one of the overdoses. Now, John even got into contact with Pink News, a local gay newspaper, to run a story on the deaths, but they decided not to after police assured them that the deaths were not suspicious. So, by this point, Port has somehow managed to avoid being caught for three murders, and it's the the fact that he's not even trying that hard to cover his tracks. Literally, everyone sees right through the bullshit except the police. So, it's not like he's some master, like, sleuth. He's literally just doing, like, and someone actually mentioned it's like that childlike mentality. Like a psychologist will later say, is like, the note, that's stupid. It's like, how could he even at first believe someone would believe that? But they believed it. Again, this has got the Jeffrey Dahmer stuff written all over it. It's like everybody except the police are like in on who it really is. And you know that has to be so fucking frustrating with being like, lit all it's. You don't even have to look that hard. It's not like it's, it literally just 
send it off and it'll come back to you. That's all you have to do. So literally everyone can see right through the bullshit except the police, which of course was probably due to homophobia on their part. But we'll get into that later. But now also remember, Stephen is still charged with perverting the court of justice for his changing of the story of what happened to Anthony Walgate. And so in March 2015, he finally stood trial for it, and he was found guilty and sentenced to eight months, but served just two months before he got out early in June 2015, so now he's officially in the clear. He's beat the charges, he's served a sentence, all the other deaths are ruled non-suspicious, so he is clean as can be now. Now, it was around this time that they actually did open inquiries into the deaths of Gabriel and Daniel, and Daniel's death was found to be suspicious due to him having postmortem bruises around his armpits and ribs, suggesting someone had dragged him and moved him after his death. The coroner even asked detectives flat out if anything, if mainly did they test the bedsheet Daniel was found on. They said no because the deaths weren't considered suspicious at first, but they said they promised they'll test him this time. But they didn't, and they never planned to. So again, Stephen was in the clear. And just three months after his release from prison, he was allowed to kill his fourth and final victim, Jack Taylor. So now, Jack Taylor was a 25-year-old forklift driver from Dagenham and is described by his family as always being happy and smiling. Now, Jack had several girlfriends over the years and was not out publicly as gay, so he used Grinder in order to connect with and meet other men. And on September 13th, 2015, Jack was out drinking at a local club before returning home and scrolling through Grinder. And just before 2 a.m., he began talking with Stephen. The two agreed to meet at Barking Station at 3 a.m., and just 36 hours after this conversation, Jack would be dead. Again, his body was found propped up against a stone wall in St. Margaret's Cemetery, but this time Barbara did not find him. He was actually, for some reason, he was propped up on the wall directly opposite the other side of the cemetery where Gabriel and Daniel had been found. So probably because he was like, Barbara keeps finding all these fucking bodies before I have time to do all my shit. So we need to move it 20 feet to the other side. Or they might get suspicious. He's like, yeah, once, all right, twice, okay. Three times maybe pushing it. So let me just move it to the other side. And that way they really won't be suspicious it it's the perfect plan so police also found a syringe and a small brown vial in his pocket police went to jack's home and informed his parents and sisters of his death stating that jack suffered from an accidental overdose and that his death was not suspicious but now the taylor family didn't believe that for a second mainly because jack was not a drug user and in fact he openly stated multiple times that he hated them so after a few weeks of attempting to get the police to investigate further, they realized they weren't going to do jack shit and decided to start their own investigation. They began to scour the internet for clues and similar cases, and that's when they stumbled across the deaths of Anthony, Gabriel, and Daniel. Searching through various newspapers and articles, they began to see the pattern between all the cases and Jack's. They even, again, went to the police with all of their evidence but were again brushed off with police stating the cases were unrelated to Jack's and that they should just leave well enough alone. Now, in the brown vial also, is that's the date rape drug that yeah. we're finding? So, yeah. like, these guys are just, like, like, all of a sudden they're going crazy and overdosing on date rape drug? And that's the thing. All the vials had GHB in them, which is the date rape drug. 
and they all suffered overdoses from it. And again, it's those it's the police probably homophobia where they're like, it's just what the gays do. And so uh but not all hope was lost actually, as the police did inform the family that they did find CCTV footage of Jack walking down the street with a blonde man the night before his body was found. The Taylor family begged the police to just put an image from the video of Jack showing Jack with the unknown man in the local newspaper to see if anyone recognized him. And surprisingly, not only did they agree to do it, but they actually did it. And so it seems that uh, that one neuron that all these guys shares finally went off. So they at least did something right. Police released the images to the public, and on October 13th, 2015, the unknown man walking with Jack was identified as Stephen Port. And then just two days later on October 15th, Stephen was arrested at his flat on suspicion of all four men's deaths. So it's like you waited, you waited, you let four people die, and then all of a sudden you just like open the floodgates to like arresting him and charging him with all these deaths. Well, at least they have all this evidence to go back and actually link him to the deaths now. I mean, they didn't use it for anything else, but yeah, now just, they're going to be like, oh, wow, we got a hard case against you, which we had a hard case with against you from like the, the first, first murder. And you know, afterwards, they're just patting themselves on the back. Like, it's because of us that a serial killer's off the street. And it's like, bitch. Now, Stephen's flat was searched and his laptop and cell phone were seized and shockingly actually analyzed. Going through his search history, police not only found disturbing internet searches for things such as young drugged boys raped, they also found 83 videos of Stephen raping unconscious men. Stephen was thoroughly questioned by police over the course of four days. His story about Anthony was largely the same, and he denied ever even knowing Gabriel or Jack. But he did for some reason lie and say that he met Daniel at a sex party, and he also denied ever using GHB. However, not now that they were actually investigating the deaths, police were able to link Stephen to all four men pretty quickly. And on October 18th, he was officially charged with first-degree murder for all four men. After news of his arrest became public, eight other men came forward with stories of how they were drugged and then sexually assaulted at Stephen's apartment. Handwriting experts were brought in and examined the suicide note of Daniel and found that it was almost identical to Stephen's handwriting, as well as having came from a notebook in his flat. The bedsheet was also finally analyzed and found to have Stephen's DNA all over it, and it was actually from his own bed. So... Now, at trial, Stephen continued to deny any and all involvement with the murders and pretty much just started spouting off any bullshit that came to his head. And that included how he met Daniel and Gabriel at a sex party and that Daniel had actually asked Stephen to write his suicide note for him while he dictated it. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. What a guy. He also claimed that Jack was a frequent drug user who took multiple drugs before suggesting to Stephen that they go have sex in the spot where his body was later found. So, he also explained away the literal dozens of videos of him raping unconscious men as that's the end of hours of consensual sex. You're only seeing the ending of it where I raped them. You didn't see the first two hours where it was consensual. I'm so good, it knocks them out. He's like, get it right. Now, of course... Nobody believed this bullshit. Now. Now they don't. Yeah, now they don't. It's like, you fool us once, shame on us. Shame on you. Fool us twice, three times, four times. Shame on us. 
Now, one detective actually said he's a voracious sexual predator who appears to have been fixated, nay, obsessed with superstitiously drugging young, often vulnerable men for the exclusive purpose of rape. This is a highly devious, manipulative, and self-obsessed individual. And Port has never shown any remorse. And he pleaded not guilty to all the charges against him. But on November 25th, 2016, a jury convicted Stephen Port on a total of 22 offenses against 11 men, including four counts of first-degree murder, four counts of rape, and 10 counts of administering a substance with intent. He was sentenced to life in prison and given a whole life order, which is the same as saying life without the possibility of parole here in America. So he's never, he's going to die in prison. Now, although Stephen is locked up and will die in prison, that is not the end of this case because it's actually still ongoing. In June 2017, an inquiry was opened up against the Barking and Dagenham Police Departments because people wanted to know just how exactly they managed to fuck up the original investigation so badly. Yeah. Very badly. And many more people are coming forward, begging and pleading for the police. After so many people literally came forward, just literally begging them, handing them the information, just asking them to just look at it. Yeah, we've done the work for you. All you have to do is like actually read it and look at it. And they didn't. They're also investigating at least 58 other overdose deaths related to GHB, although they did say not all those are related to Stephen, but there may be more out there. Also, why didn't they follow any protocols with testing evidence or anything like that? Or even the fucking coroner, when she suggested, she said, these deaths are suspicious. You just check it. And they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it eventually. So John thinks the police negligence boils down to one thing, stating they probably thought, oh, that's just what gay guys do. And you know for 100% fact, it's just like the Dahmer case. When he explained it away as a quarrel with his boyfriend, they're just like, oh, we don't want to get involved. That's just that lifestyle choice. You know they think it's a choice. So they're like, that lifestyle choice. And it's... Um, and those gay guys love drugging themselves with date rape drugs. Just love it. You know it. So several family, so several family members of the victims have also launched civil suits against the Metropolitan Police Department. And those are still ongoing to this day. Now, for an interesting side story that is directly related to the case, one question everyone had was exactly, where exactly was Stephen getting all this GHB from? Because another Ryan, that neighbor of his, came home. He said, I actually started, stopped going over there because one time I came over and there was about 10 gigantic vials of clear liquid just sitting on the table, which Stephen said were for drugs. So he was actually getting it from a 26-year-old guy named Gerald Matavu. And an interesting thing about Gerald, on August 18th, 2018, he murdered a businessman and actor named Eric Michaels by giving him a lethal dose of GHB after the two met on Grinder. So it's kind of weird that those two cases happened like that, but it um, just shows you to, you got to be careful out there. And with that, that is the story of Stephen Port. And the grinder killer. So this was a um, this was an infuriating one. It definitely gave war flashbacks to Dahmer, and how the police just completely overlooked. It's not just the fact that the police overlooked it; it's the fact that had they even glanced at it, probably three of these guys would still be alive. At least one hundred percent, Jack would still be alive. 
And that's the thing that just you can't get over because it's like that's a human being. That's someone's life that your lazy-ass fuck-up murdered, inadvertently murdered. Definitely, they were basically an accomplice to this guy at this point because they were letting him just continue on by, like, turning a blind eye. Oh, yeah. I mean, at that point, Stevens was like, hey, man, thanks for keeping doing me these solids. Hell, yeah. And you know that's what he thought. He's like, he's getting cocky, and that's why he started kind of upping the ante a little bit by just dumping them in the same cemetery. I think this guy just didn't think and was like, one of those guys that should have been caught immediately and the police were just so incompetent that he wasn't. And that's the thing, like I was saying, like everyone's saying like, it's so stupid. It's like the glass onion, the glass onion was like, it's so stupid. It's brilliant. No, it's just stupid. Like trying to stage as a suicide and a murder, dumping them in the same exact spot. The he note that says, don't look at the guy that is probably the murderer. Literally sounds like something out of a, a sitcom. But, and that's one of the reasons why the investigation was open. Because like, how the fuck do you miss that? And it is still ongoing. But however, that's where we'll leave you guys with this case. But if there is an update on the internal investigation we will keep you updated hopefully there is one soon so uh we can actually find out what the hell they were thinking or what excuse they use for it or what excuse or excuses they have which i'm sure they have a shit ton of and what and i mean nothing happens to them that's always my favorite thing with like internal investigations was like we investigated ourselves and we found ourselves not guilty of any wrongdoing that's like me being like, you know, I reflected on it and I decided that, no, I wasn't wrong. That's just like the two cops that gave Dahmer back his victim and then they didn't do anything, they didn't do anything to them. Didn't anything. And so, oof. well, now I'm just pissed off all over again thinking about that. So uh, sorry for leaving you guys pissed off properly. That is where we leave you for today. If you liked us, please be sure to leave us a five star review or a rating on Spotify, iTunes or wherever it is you listen to your podcast at. Also, if you want to see photos from this case, please follow us on Instagram at Beers with Queers Pod or on Facebook at Beers with Queers, a true crime podcast. And we will see you guys back Monday. And until then, please stay safe out there. Stay safe on any dating apps you guys may use. And uh, most for of the, all... For the love of God, don't drink anything from anybody that you are ju have just met. Definitely. And, you know, um, especially when I was younger, too, you always practice the, if you go over to any new friend's house, to let a friend know where your location is and stuff like that. Just be very careful. There's a lot of crazy people out there. So until next time, stay dangerous out there. See you guys. Bye.